If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the History Extra End of Roman Britain podcast series. This is episode four. My name is David Musgrove. I'm your host for this series. Today's guest is Dr. David Petz of Durham University. And the focus of our conversation this time is going to be on late Roman religion and Christianity specifically. As I've done with most of my guests, the first thing I asked David to do was to summarise his position on what happened at the end of Roman Britain. So over to David. In the 5th century, one of the challenges is we've got two things going on. We've got the end of Roman Britain, and we've got the separate but related issue of the arrival of Germanic Germanic cultural influence. Um, And they're not necessarily the same thing. In the old days, we used to think that it was the the incoming Anglo-Saxons which kind of led to the the reworking uh, of the conversion of Britain from a Roman state into a a Roman province into an, an early medieval kingdom. Now we think it's more complicated. For me, there are certainly big changes in Roman Britain in the late 4th century, but it's quite clear that Roman Britain was wealthy, important, and an integral part of the empire throughout the 4th century. There are major changes in the 5th century. In the, in, in, in the past, people used to think of it as being quite a rapid collapse in, in the early 5th century. My feeling is that we can see that less as a falling off a cliff and seeing it more now as a quite a steep hill. So I think certainly by the time we get into the mid to late 5th century, 
a lot of those indexes which we would use to think about how Roman Britain is have largely disappeared. So villas are not being built anymore. Uh, coinage isn't really being used anymore. Uh, ceramics aren't being produced in, in a large scale anymore. So that that's my my take on it. Some of these processes are starting in the fourth century. Some only get going in in the fifth century. But um, there's more continuities. I think some people traditionally think, but perhaps less continuity than some other people have claimed. Right. Now, what I want to focus on with you in this conversation um, is religion, which is uh, a a topic which you are an expert on. So the nature and any sort of discernible change in the pattern of religious belief and practice over the period would, would surely help us to understand what might have been going on. So the opening question on that is, how far was late Roman Britain Christian? Late Roman Britain was definitely an integral part of the wider world of late Roman Christendom. Uh, We have bishops, we have churches, we had martyrs uh, before before the uh, Christianity was made, made illicit religion. It is as Christian as most of France, chunks of Spain. Um, It's 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 as Christian as anywhere really in the Western Roman Empire. And and you mentioned Christian Christianity being made licit. Can you just remind us of the process of that? When when did Christianity become uh, acceptable in the Roman Empire? Yeah, I mean the key the key turning point is the um, advent of Constantine as uh, emperor uh, of of the Roman of the Roman Empire. He um, in AD three one three there is a uh, something called the Edict of Milan, which essentially makes Christianity a legal or licit religion. Uh, and that's basically building on events which have been happening in the Eastern Roman Empire in the year or two before. And from that point, Christianity is fully uh, sanctioned as a religion within the empire. Crucially, it doesn't mean it is the only or official um, religion of the empire. That doesn't happen until later in the 4th century. But it does mean that the the emperors are Christian. Uh, most of the senior bureaucrats, etc., uh, become Christian very rapidly. So although it's not formally a Christian empire, in de facto terms, um, if you want to progress socially, being Christian is a good idea. And we have a, a, um, a network, an emerging network of a increasingly Christianized army and Christianized bureaucracy. So it was it was uh, in people's interest, perhaps, to be Christian within the bounds of the Roman Empire. I wonder, what do we know about Christianity beyond the bounds of the Roman Empire in Britain and Ireland during this period in the in the in the fourth century, for instance, do we know much about how far it extended its reach there? We 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 don't. We have very little evidence. By by the end of the fourth century, there are probably um, kind of probing out into these into these areas, but we don't have the archaeological or textual evidence that can really allow us to kind of distinguish between what's happening in say the, the late fourth century and what's happening in the in in the fifth century certainly in other parts of the roman world though christianity is getting beyond the borders so in places like armenia over into the persian empire down into places like ethiopia and africa christianity does kind of spread quite rapidly so there's no inherent reason why early christianity should not be reaching beyond the, the boundaries of roman britain quite rapidly and how clear are we um, about other religious practices that Christianity replaced or that it ran alongside um, with during, during this period? 
Yeah, I think we need to see it as as running running alongside Roman Britain, as with much Roman Empire, it, it's it, it's a world full of full of gods. There's lots of different religious practices and religious traditions. I think the, the obvious major change is that the kind of cult of the Roman Empire, the divine emperor, that that kind of disappears um, because obviously you can't have a Christian emperor who's himself claiming to be a divinity. But um, certainly in Britain, it's quite clear that there continues to be. Um, a range of other religious practices. So things like Mithraism continues to exist, some, some of these imported cults from, from the Eastern Roman Empire. But also I think the, the dominant religion uh, through most Roman Britain was a kind of a, a, a mix, a cocktail of, of local traditions influenced by, by Roman religious traditions. And certainly they seem to have carried on through the fourth century and quite possibly into the into the fifth century, we've got evidence that temples are being continued to be used. Uh, we have evidence for kind of votive practices, kind of carefully structured deposition of, of ritual items and those kinds of things. So I think although we although Christianity is important, it is running alongside in the fourth century a host of other kind of religious and ritual traditions. So am I am I reading it correctly to say that by the the mid to late fourth century Christianity was kind of part of the fabric the the structure and organisation of the Roman Empire. Yes, it, it, it becomes absolutely kind of embedded within the empire emperor, and, and crucially, it's the people who are the Christians are the people in power. They are the the magistrates, the the, the, the military, um, and people like bishops become increasingly. Uh, absorbed into civil administration. So things like bishops can start to hear uh, civil cases as magistrates, for example. So it's not just the kind of total number of Christians, it's actually who they are and the particular power they have. So I guess that's historically attested in terms in, in terms of documentary sources, but in archaeological sources, how far can we be clear how pervasive uh, the influence of Christianity was in in Roman Britain. Yeah, this is where it starts to get starts to get complicated. We have clear, unambiguous evidence for the practice of Christianity in the fourth century. We have evidence of Christian symbols on belt buckles, which are used and created in Britain. We have uh, Christian imagery used uh, appearing on mosaics. We have Christian imagery appearing on uh, all sorts of objects. Um, so there's clearly a presence of Christians within Britain. What we don't have are, is really any clear evidence for churches. Um, but this is, isn't a big problem because I think there's a tendency for British archaeologists to not understand the nature of the wider archaeology of early Christianity. So actually, if you look in places like Spain or um, Asia Minor or even big chunks of Italy, we don't actually have that many um, surviving 4th century churches over there either um, and i think it's more a problem of actually trying to identify churches archaeologically it's very very tricky particularly from the very earliest phases in, in the fourth century so we've got the small finds evidence we've got documentary evidence it's just the, the structural evidence for churches themselves which we're lacking but as i said it's very very hard to know what a church looks like in the fourth century well, that's that's really interesting. Do we have a sense about how and where Christianity was practiced then? Presumably not in in a in a in a church setting that we would recognise today. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we need to think about kind of the church until until the beginning of the fourth century is is illegal. So, uh, through, through much of the empire, effectively. So, in practical terms. 
they're not able to invest in big church buildings because you know they might have them they don't have access to necessarily the funding they it's a way it's very high profile to build a large church so when you get in when the church becomes a a, a illicit religion suddenly they're in a situation where they could have both resources and the the social safety and kind of political safety to start building churches and one of the things they face they don't actually have an existing archaeological repertoire sorry architectural repertoire of what a church ought to look like so what do they do they look around they look for um kind of inspiration in the architecture they see in the roman world and the the the, the kind of plan form which they adopt is the basilica and the basilica is basically a kind of rectangular building uh, with a, an apse or like a smaller smaller chamber at one end um where the altar, roughly around that area where the altar would be, you know, have a have a, an entrance in the other short end, uh, and often it's divided into aisles. And actually, that is the kind of plan we see in most churches, uh, you know, well into the medieval world. But in the Roman world, the basilica is used for all sorts of things. It's used for administrative purposes. They can be used for um, by other religions. So a lot, a lot, a lot of um, uh, early Mithraea essentially uh, basilica so what we have is is, is they, they're using an architectural form which is already used by lots of other people so one of our problems we have is actually how do you tell when you've only got the plan whether the building you're looking at is a early church or uh, a mithraeum or a, a a guild's meeting house or or some other administrative structure and that is a problem in the fourth century it's not that the, it's not that we don't have churches in britain i'm sure that we have churches but it's an archaeological problem is that we can't distinguish them from other kinds of building using the same plan. Okay, so let's go into the into the fifth century. The the early fifth century is this period where uh, we we imagine that there is a decline in Roman influence in Britain as as the imperial power wanes to an extent. And, and you you said less of a collapse, more of a continual process. But if if what you're saying is correct, that sort of Christianity and the structures of of Roman power are, are kind of interlinked. Does that mean that we see a decline in Christianity during this period as well? No, quite quite the reverse. I think one one of the things we see in this period is that um, the church, first of all, the church although remains in contact with the continent, um, whilst the the kind of formal reins of power in terms of political governments are obviously severed in in, in the early fifth century. We've got clear evidence that the Christian Church remains in contact with the mainland church uh, on, in the Western Roman Empire. So we have bishops like Saint Germanus coming over from Gaul in in the kind of early to well, kind of mid mid fifth century to engage in in kind of. Uh, attempts to try and deal with, with issues of, of, of heresy and, and, and disputation within the British church. Uh, we have evidence for uh, communications and, and, and between British bishops and, 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 and bishops in Gaul. Uh, it, it's absolutely clear that in terms of individuals, that there continues to be um, a, a, a communication between Britain and, uh, and 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 the wider church, and this is this is this is sometimes one of these kind of myths that come the end of Roman Britain. Suddenly, Britain is isolated, and the British Church is isolated. It's not. It's part of the the wider the wider world. So we see that in terms of the ob- of the people and, and, and the textual sources. Also, we see that in terms of other things. The most obvious is that in terms in we see those continued connections in terms of burial traditions. So in the 5th century, we have a flowering of new types of grave marker. 
uh, with Latin inscriptions on. Um, they're found in areas of Britain where there's never real a real tradition of Roman grave monuments. So I'm thinking places like we have them be these new Latin stones in places like Southwest England, Wales particularly, uh, in getting up into areas of southern Scotland. Um, and these are grave markers which have Latin inscriptions um, using particular kind of uh, epitaphs and burial formula. Uh, and they are absolutely identical in terms of the inscriptions with very similar monuments found across the Western Roman Empire. Uh, they are, have the same, same kind of phrases used, and it shows that you know we are really part of a shared community of, of burial practice uh, in, in Western Britain to, uh, specifically. You know, they, they clearly have, have parallels with what's going on in Gaul and Spain and North Africa and, and Italy. So let's take a pause for a moment because this seems quite important. Uh, we've heard in earlier episodes there might have been something of a dislocation in terms of political and military structures between Britain and the rest of the empire in the 5th century. But what David's saying here is that Christianity endures as a connecting force to some extent. I wanted to just check in and ask him if he felt that Christianity was used by people who wanted to try to demonstrate that they were in some way culturally Roman still. Yeah, I think this is really important. I think in Western Britain, Christianity provides a vicarious way of still participating in the Roman world culturally, even though there's no longer those uh, direct political political connections. So the church provides a network of of, of links and, and fellowship, and it's an intellectual network, uh, which allows people in Britain, in Western Britain particularly, to continue to be part of that kind of wider, wider cultural world, particularly a, a, a the Latin cultural world of, of the Western, the Western Roman Empire. So, you know, I think one of the really interesting things is we see from these these tomb, these tombstones, is they're written in Latin. You know, they, they're, they're not written in, in any of the indigenous languages of Britain. They they can, people are clearly continuing to use Latin as the language of public memorialization. Um, it's 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 clearly it's clearly a way of being part of a network of the Roman world, culturally, if not politically. And, it's a, and it provides a way of making that kind of material, making it, making it physical. Uh, you build a church and, you know, a churchman from Italy could probably end up in a church in Britain and still kind of know what that building was for and why he was there. And equally, a, a, a priest from somewhere like kind of South Wales could end up in a church in, in central Gaul and be you know, welcomed as a, as, as a fellow member of, of the community of, of, of Christ. So that's really interesting, I think, because you mentioned earlier in, in one of your answers that there's, we have this idea of an isolated land and, and you, and you, you dis- disagree with that. And, and, and what you're saying there is that there is uh, a lot of connection, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, interactivity going on. So are you imagining quite a, like a reasonable flow of, of people going between the, the Christian parts of, of Roman, of, of post-Roman Britain and, and the continent? Yeah, I think I think it's pretty. I think it's. I mean, we're not talking kind of you know roll on roll off ferries of, of, of clerics kind of stopping stopping in northern France. But what's clear is I think those connections are uh, continuous. They, they 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 are connections forged in the fourth century, and they continue to be carried on unbroken through through the fifth century. There's certainly changes, perhaps in 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 the the 
specific routes. So, for example, it's quite clear that in the 5th century and into the 6th century, the kind of the Atlantic routes down the kind of west of Britain, down, down the west of France towards Spain, they were perhaps more important than whereas in the 4th century, connections directly across the English Channel to kind of northern, northern Gaul were perhaps more important. But in, 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 in the longer term, those connections are kind of all joining up in the Mediterranean. They're, they're connections leading to Rome, leading to the to the East Mediterranean. So, yes, people are moving. It's not, and it's not just necessarily specifically churchmen. There's increasing evidence from things like bone isotopes of people from the Mediterranean being buried in places like Wales. We're I mean, not a huge number, but you know, we're, we're only sampling a very small number of cemeteries in the first place so it's it's clear there continues to be connections and there's trade connections we see uh imported objects from the eastern mediterranean potteries particularly coming up into britain in the, in this period as well so christianity is just one of a series of existing of links which are nurtured and maintained in, in the fifth century we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Tintagel is a place, I think, if, if I remember rightly, where we, we have good sort of material evidence for, for trade, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean the, the Tintagel is, 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 is the classic example of somewhere which has a large assemblage of amphora, Roman amphora, uh, uh, and fine wares, and increasingly getting a good understanding of some of the coarse wares as well. Uh, and these are all things produced in North Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, we, it's clear when you look at the kind of wider distribution that there's a, a communication route exporting these objects from the kind of Mediterranean world up through through the through the through the gates gates of Gibraltar, up the west coast, uh, and boats are stopping in in Spain, uh, in in Portugal, northern Spain, Bordeaux, and then reaching up up to Britain. And you, so these this is a world of of trading uh, and, and exchange. And there's probably things like leather and other goods coming from Western Britain heading back down. And also, most notably in, in the Cornish context, tin. But it's interesting when you look at what this pottery is. We've got we've got the fine 
tablewares, but the which are kind of nice to eat off. But the amphora, the amphora are containing wine and oil. And to celebrate the, the the Christian mass, you need wine for the communion, uh, and you need and to anoint people to um, to carry out all sorts of church rituals. You need you need oil, olive oil. So I'm not I'm not necessarily suggesting that the church are driving that trade, but they clearly have an interest in the materials which are coming up from from the from the Mediterranean world. And I should have mentioned for, for listeners who aren't um, familiar with British geography, Tintagel is, is of course uh, a, a lovely little place on the north coast of Cornwall in the uh, in in the peninsula in the southwest. There, uh, famous for its links to uh, King Arthur, but um, but we probably won't go there in this conversation. Um, so we talked quite a lot about the sort of what's happening more in the west of Britain. I guess is it a completely different situation in the east of England? If you follow that narrative of there being a big migration or even an invasion of of people from uh, from continental Europe into eastern England, then uh, and particularly people who weren't Christian, then you would expect to see a big dislocation in religious practice. Is that evidenced? Yeah, absolutely. We certainly have major cultural change, and, and, and no matter how we frame it as migration or, or elite. No matter how we think of it, it's clear there is a big cultural change. And first of all, what's important is the, the areas where we see this biggest cultural change are the areas which were most Romanized and thus most Christianized in the fourth century. So, whilst it's possible that places like St. Albans, the, the, the cult of St. Alban, who is a Roman martyr, may have continued or almost certainly continued in this period, for the majority of the population, it appears that. They are shedding their Roman beliefs, whether that's Roman Christianity or Roman paganism, and adopting a new kind of Germanic uh, set of, 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 of pagan Christian, pagan uh, religious religious beliefs. This is really important because it means that this is the kind of the unspoken conversion. You always think about this period. Uh, we think about conversion to Christianity, but in 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 the, the east of Britain, where we've got the or east of east of England, the south of England, particularly where we have these new Germanic influences or, or possible Germanic influences, what we're seeing is another major period of of, of religious change. Um, so, a family who over two or three three or four generations in, say, somewhere like um, Suffolk, they could have gone through being kind of in the mid-4th century Roman pagan, converting to Roman Christian, and then in the later 5th century, converting back to a new kind of paganism, but a more Germanic-influenced paganism. So there's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot going on there. It, it, the religious world is quite, quite fluid. Time for a quick step back, because we're going to talk a lot more about the issue of migration and population movement in the post-Roman period in future episodes. Now, this question of fluidity of religion that David just talked about perhaps helps explain why, by the end of the 6th century, the Pope, Gregory, felt obliged to send a mission under Augustine to bring Christianity back. Um, So I wanted to check in with David to find out what we know about this mission. Right, we've got a situation. I mean, one, one of the things we know about Augustine, he, he arrives and he actually meets British bishops in in the in, in the west of west of west of England. Um, so there's clearly an, an established established church, and as I've already mentioned, we've got documentary evidence that there's a well-established church in in the west of Britain. So you've got the writings of Gildas and and you know, British bishops sometimes pop up at church councils, and then there's there's all sorts of textual textual sources. So we've got a when Augustine arrives. Certainly, the the world he's coming straight into, the, the Anglo-Saxon world, is pagan. But 
beyond that, you know, and we're talking about an area which perhaps comprises maybe half of the landmass, maybe even more of, of, of Britain, we've got a well-established church. And crucially, by this point, the church has spread beyond the bounds of the former Roman Empire. So we, we can't necessarily spot that in the 4th century, but by the time we get into the 5th century, and certainly by the time we get into the 6th century, it's clear that Christianity has spread across a lot of Scotland, certainly the kind of broadly the, the West and, and South, and crucially, Ireland. Ireland, Ireland becomes a, a bastion of, of, of Christianity. So when Augustine arrives, he's not just necessarily confronting British bishops, he's, he's, he's or, or, indigenous British bishops. He's, these are bishops with connections with Ireland, with up into Scotland. And of course, these bishops themselves are, British bishops are connected with, with the existing church. So it's not, as I said, it, we often get this idea that the British church is somehow kind of isolated and, 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 and lacking in connection. And part of that is that's because of the sto- that's the story that people like Bede want us to think. They want us to think that the Anglo-Saxon bishops were the good bishops and the British bishops were kind of dangerously unorthodox and out of out of context. So a, a lot of our stories about the early church are kind of seen through a fairly partial and biased uh, documentary record coming out of the Anglo-Saxon church. Now I've blundered here because uh, I've been guilty of letting the conversation rush too far forward by charging onto the story of Augustine's mission. We can't really cover the role of Christianity in the 5th century in Britain without mentioning a certain St. Patrick, whose dates are uncertain, but he was probably alive at this time. I asked David for a summary of his importance to the story. Oh, St. Patrick's uh, a really exciting figure because he is the the, the one person we've got who kind of crosses the uh, or connects the late Roman church with, with the early medieval church. We don't precisely know where Patrick comes from. He's probably coming from, he probably comes from somewhere in Western, Western Britain, uh, in the, within the Roman world. But crucially, we know um, that his father and grandfather were both Roman Christians. Patrick's kind of the date of Patrick is, is, is bit, a bit kind of unclear, but certainly his, his father and probably uh, certainly his grandfather and almost certainly his father were Romano-British people living in the fourth cent- late 4th century. And they, one was a priest and one was a deacon. So he, Patrick is emerging out of that Romano-British Christian context. But crucially, Patrick is taken as a slave to Ireland, uh, where he escapes, he goes back to train in, in, in kind of, uh, I guess, kind of training as a missionary, he goes back to Ireland, and he starts that conversion process. Actually, he's following on from, from an earlier figure called Palladius, who's probably also sent as a missionary to Ireland. But, but Patrick's the one we know, we know more about, and Patrick is clearly British, whereas Palladius is coming from somewhere else. So this means, so this is a, that kind of connection between Britain and Roman Britain and Ireland and it's really important because Ireland again is an area which was outside the Roman world but it converts to Christianity and by the kind of sixth century it's well the church is really really well well established and then of course from from Ireland we then have further missionaries Going into going into kind of Western Scotland, and they are then going up into the up into the Pictish world, and of course, you know, in in the sixth century, Irish priests are then going back down into Europe. People like Columbanus and kind of reviving 
um, and, and stimulating Christianity back down in, in what had been the Western Roman Empire. So the role of Ireland is incredibly incredibly important um, and it's really interesting because Ireland has those clear connections with both the Roman continental church under Palladius but also Patrick he is a Romano-British man he is not somebody from Gaul he's not someone from Rome the it's clear that the, the that major impulse of conversion of Ireland is coming from Roman Britain itself so I hope that was a useful summary of St. Patrick's role in the story and gets us back on track. St. Patrick brings back into sharper focus what was happening in Western Britain and Ireland and the importance of the development of the church there, as David explains. But words to the wise, whatever you do, if you ever bump into David or his academic colleagues who work in this area, do not be tempted to start talking about the Celtic church. I don't like the term the Celtic Church. And it's one of these it's one of these terms which has kind of escaped into popular culture and is very, very hard to kind of get rid of. There's I there's very few academics and researchers working in this period who would use the idea of the Celtic Church today. And it's something which has been criticized for knocking on 30, 40 years, but it's 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 a very potent idea. So essentially the idea of the Celtic Church is that we have the churches of Wales, kind of Cornwall, Scotland, Ireland, and Brittany, who are the, the the areas of the world which spoke Celtic languages. There's the idea that somehow these churches share something in common which makes them similar and makes them somehow distinguishes them particularly from uh, the kind of the Roman church as as broadly understood the trouble is this doesn't actually bear bear much scrutiny um, a lot of the ideas like things like the dates of easter it's quite clear that the date of easter was 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 celebrated at different times in different parts of the celtic world uh, the idea that um you know the, the romans roman missionaries or anglo-saxon missionaries had to bring the correct date it doesn't really bear out um so some some parts of the, of the irish church are, are celebrating the uh, the dates differently Already, when Augustine arrives or arrives in Britain, uh, there's you know, there's some differences and things like monastic haircut, uh, but we don't know how far widely that would how far that was spread, um, and, and the idea that kind of you know priests in the south of Brittany in the sixth century in Cornwall in the ninth century newly minted Pictish converts in the in the 7th century and well-established Irish bishops in Armagh in the 8th century are somehow all part of a shared kind of Celtic church just just doesn't doesn't work I think a lot of the idea again is rooted in this notion of Britain and Ireland being isolated from what's happening what's happening in the continent more widely if you look at the church on on a kind of you know European scale, what's clear is there's all sorts of local differences. What's happening in say North Africa in the sixth century is very different from what's happening in the church in central France, and it's very different from what's happening in the church in in uh, kind of places like um, the Balkans. There's lots of local traditions. There's lots of churches working and praying and building churches in slightly different ways so there's lots and lots of regional traditions but what you can't do is draw a fault line that distinct that somehow separates off everything in the far northwest of europe with the celtic speaking countries from everything else there's lots of variety yes the church of ireland is very very different from what's happening in in say sicily 
But equally, it's very different from what's happening in Brittany. And the Church of Sicily is very different from what's happening uh, in, in northern Spain. So there's lots and lots of what the, the great scholar of, of late antiquity, Peter Brown, has called micro-Christianities. There's lots and lots of different ways of being a Christian. There's different ways to build a church. There's different ways to uh, illuminate a manuscript. There's different ways to bury somebody. Um, so what's more interesting is actually all these smaller regional variations rather than trying to make a fairly crude distinction between the Celts and the not Celt. Okay, so uh, you've, you've clearly flagged up the dangers of generalisation. Uh, I'm going to ask you to generalise now. Um, so so to, 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 to wrap up, how does um, our understanding of what happened in terms of religious practice uh, through the through the through the through the fifth century help us to understand what was going on more widely in terms of social change and, and uh, population change, political change. I think what's clear is the the the, the fourth fifth century is clearly a, it's clearly a period of change. Absolutely, there's there's no getting round that. Uh, there's a political separation from Roman Empire, and that then has social and economic impacts. But we've got to try and think about this on multiple different axes. It's not just about politics and economics. Christianity is perhaps the key area where we do see continuity it's the it's the um is is the bridge it's 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 that kind of cord that continues to connect uh britain with what's going on uh, in the wider wider roman world it's uh christianity provides a way of people to connect themselves conceptually culturally with the wider roman world and of course very specifically the the the, the british bishops uh, the british uh, and irish and scottish Christians of the 5th and 6th century, they are part of the wider world of, of Christendom. We have that archaeologically, we have that in terms of documentary sources. Uh, it's not an isolated thing. The British and Irish and Scottish churches are integral to what's happening in terms of religion and social change. Also, Christianity is really important, whether we like it or not, because by the time we get to at the end of the first millennium, Europe, apart from very small areas on, on, on the periphery, is a Christian world. And Christianity is, is, is something which, which is, is central to the kind of self-identity of, of, kind of Western of, 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 you know, Europe uh, in, in this period. And it becomes you know, the overwhelmingly the, the dominant religion. So, and we see that impact again on belief, but also in things like economy. So much land is given to the church in this period. It fundamentally kind of reshapes aspects of, 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 kind of wider social world. So there's a, the church is really, really important. You don't have to, one doesn't have to kind of like the church or dislike the church or have, you know, believe in any of these things. But it's clear that the emergence of a, of, of this, it's an entirely new social body. It's an entirely new institution which operates in a way that no Roman religion ever did. So it's incredibly, it's incredibly important. And it's one of the underlying factors that leads to the transformation of what you might call the classical or late antique world into the early medieval world. 
So you've been listening there to Dr. David Petz, Associate Professor of Archaeology at the University of Durham and an expert on the social archaeology of the entire first millennium, but particularly uh, with an interest in Christianity. And in fact, I talked to him for the podcast a little while ago about Lindisfarne, Holy Island. So if you want to look out for that, then search through the catalogue to have a look. I hope that has been a useful explanation of the place and role of Christianity and religion generally in our story. And next time around, I'll be talking to Dr. James Gerrard to find out more about what actually happened as we move into the post-Roman period.